Hello and welcome to BSI's Big Sustainability Ideas podcast, hosted by David Thatcher, Sebastian Van Dort and Nick Fleming, who between them have deep sector experience in energy, ESG, transport and mobility. The idea is an ambitious one, but simple too. Each episode, our aim is to meet with many of the biggest, most influential figures in sustainability to understand where we are, how we got here and crucially, where this fascinating topic is headed to help all of us navigate the future. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to our latest BSI podcast where we will be talking to someone who I've known for possibly the best part of 10 years and would say is one of the best connected and most respected voices in sustainability, Nick Blythe, a fellow of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, IEMA, also IEMA's Policy and Engagement Lead, and the Chair of ISO's Climate Change Coordination Committee, ISO being the International Standards Organization of which BSI is a founder member. In both his IEMA and ISO capacity, the demands on Nick's time are considerable, so we are very pleased that the wearer of so many hats has been able to join us, and the things we'll touch on today are very much prompted by where those roles intersect namely the recent UN Climate Summit of 26. It's just over 100 days since the UK played host to the 26th Conference of the Parties, COP. And whilst any talk of legacy may be premature, on this podcast, we're keen to better understand if Glasgow delivered and where Nick thinks standards can best support the ambition of the UN, its member states, and what are often termed non-state actors, businesses and societal stakeholders, by encouraging wider adoption to globally agreed, expert-led good practice. First of all, Nick, thank you for joining us on this BSI Sustainability Podcast. I think we should start with you introducing yourself in your own words. Yeah, well, thanks, David. And it's great to be joining you for this. Um, As you said, I've worked for probably about 25 years now in differing sustainability roles in public sector, at local level through to national level, consultancy, and uh, national uh, NGOs as well. Before I became IEMA's lead on on natural environment, corporate sustainability and climate change and energy. Um, So as you say, I'm a fellow, a chartered environmentalist. And and, uh, in addition to that, I've taken on some international roles. So I've been really sort of lucky and fortunate to work with uh, a range of professional practitioners. That's both the IEMA members in businesses and organizations who are, if you like, at the front edge of sustainability um, working in some difficult situations, trying to transition businesses and organisations, but also international experts through ISO and also through the UNFCC. I'm, I'm a member of the expert peer review group for the uh, Race to Zero campaign. So, uh, yeah, very privileged position to work with some good people and uh, on what is undoubtedly the leading challenge of our time. Uh, so thank you, David. No, that's, that's great. And I, we'll probably have to, we'll probably unpack some of those those acronyms actually as well, actually. UFCCC, I think, was very much something that was uh, referred to a lot during the sort of build up to COP26 and, and around the time, but uh, we can always go into that as well. So I know you, you've attended the UN Climate Change Summit, uh, well, the, the one in COP21 in 2015 that delivered the Paris Climate Agreement. You've also, I know, attended most of the COPs since then, often speaking at them or hosting events. Can you sum up for us what you think the hope was with COP26 going into COP26, especially with regard to how it then um, was sort of referenced in the context of what COP21 achieved? I'm thinking here about phrases like uh, keep 1.5 alive, what that really meant. 
uh, and what your main takeaway of Glasgow was. Absolutely. Yeah, very happy to. And I think context is everything here, David. So if you are, for instance, um, a participant in COP26 from one of the countries in the global south, you would have a different perspective from many of us from developed nations who participated. Um, I think it's important to say that let's start with 1.5. That was, of course, a bit of an umbrella um, overarching objective. And, and is is it still alive, this, this question that we can potentially try and limit warming to 1.5 degrees, which IPCC, International Panel on Climate Change uh, reports, have indicated is, is if, if we can keep global warming to that level of 1.5 degrees, then the, uh, the, the impacts of climate change, which are inevitable, will, will be likely or possible to be less severe. No, not guaranteed, though, but 1.5 has been a, if you like, an overarching objective, but we're very close. It's very difficult to see how, how, how we can limit warming to 1.5, but it barely alive, I think, is what the, uh, the COP president and others have come away saying, you know, 1.5 might still be possible if there is now a rapid turnaround and rapid transition in business models and in economies globally. So we shall we shall see. Um, there remains a lack of progress on critical issues that, for instance, uh, countries in the developing South face, um, particularly on issues like the pledged annual funding and also issues around loss and damage um, for countries facing the, the, the sort of hard impacts from the changing climate. So the takeaways from Glasgow feel very mixed. There was undoubtedly some real progress, some real good collaborations and partnerships and commitments as well with, of course, the Methane Pledge and a number of other pledges that were made. And, and the Race to Zero, I think, captures and reflects the real momentum for, for many non-state and state actors. Um, but still some, some unfinished business and tricky issues to resolve. You, you mentioned the, um, obviously the UN and, and, and the uh, in the context of COP26. I mean, I was there on the first day in Glasgow um, and um, the opening address that the, the UN uh, Secretary General always gives, Antonio Guterres on this, on this occasion, uh, normally is, is the one that, that you know, the media will pick up on in terms of what the ambition of the event was. Um, it was uh, an address which obviously, uh, picked, you know, as you said, picked up on, on what, what we were there for Glasgow for. There was a reference there, actually, he made, which... Others may have missed, but it, it did send a few little sort of minor shockwaves through, I think, the sort of standards reps uh, in Glasgow, which he talked about there being a deficit of credibility and a surplus of confusion over emissions reductions and net zero targets with different meanings and different metrics. So obviously that's a reference there to maybe uh, different ways in which organisations are, are assessing their own performance in terms of managing down greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and I guess a, a nod there to the role of standards, potentially the confusing role of standards. Do you think he's right to make those comments? And, and how might we agree where better harmonisation in terms of you know, measurement techniques is needed? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, very happy to come back on that one. Uh, so this is getting to the nub of some of the um, real economy angles behind how we transition to net zero. I guess from my perspective, I, I would say it would be really surprising if there was only just one or two standards um, around net zero 
at this point in time. It, it's completely understandable that there is a, a bit of a plethora of approaches across the world. Um, I think practice is starting to harmonise and there's some really good examples of this. So I mentioned the Race to Zero set up by the COP high-level champions, uh, the two COP high-level champions, uh, launched in 2019. The Race to Zero has got some real momentum, 67 regions, over 1,000 cities, over 5,000 companies, over 1,000 educational institutes, all signed up to net zero pledges, financial institutions, over 400, over 3,000 hospitals as well. So globally, there, there is some real traction and leadership commitment to net zero under the race to zero. And that is all about um, only accepting into the race the, the, the kind of commitments that are really highly credible, that, that are, if you like, signed up to transition to halve emissions or better by the end of this decade and uh, then pushing off to achieve net pushing on to achieve net zero as soon as possible so to me the race to zero is a really good example of leadership and a good example where where there is a consensus emerging around this planetary concept of net zero how you take that and apply that to a business and organization and what it means for them and it doesn't mean just balancing emissions it means really fast, rapid action and transition, and then balancing emissions in the future after you've really driven down, driven down the carbon footprint and the energy use. So uh, that's that's clear to me. And there were a number of standards around practices solidifying. There's uh, international standards are developing. ISO is developing a carbon neutrality standard, ISO 14068. The Science-Based Target Initiative has launched its corporate standard for net zero just around the COP uh, at Glasgow. And that's seen as a very, uh, a very good and credible approach that is capturing very similar, uh, similar requirements to how I outlined the, the, the requirements of the race to zero. So I think over time, hopefully not too much time as well, there'll be an increasing harmonisation of the core principles of what net zero is. I believe it's coming anyway. And that's, that's now the interesting thing is then embedding that into the real economy. And to do that, we really need to take that from that leadership practice into a whole host of standards at national level, at international level, and also through legislation at national level as well to support businesses in their transitions. So that's going to be the interesting next step. It's, it, the, the economy is hugely complex and getting net zero spread into these wider economic, uh, in, in, into, into the wider economies will be, will be the next step and the next challenge. I think it's interesting you talk about that. First of all, you mentioned the idea of leadership and how crucial that is to sort of um, uh, supporting businesses in terms of how they can transition. In other words, it's not just the, as important as that is, not just the job of, say, an IEMA member who's who's working on environmental management or energy management. It has to come from the top of an organisation. Um, I know, uh, turning to your, your ISO role, I mean, ISO is responsible for a number of different uh, standardisation programmes that support climate action in, in many ways. So, it's in, 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 uh, fundamentally, it's obviously about greenhouse gas management, quantification, reduction, but it's also the culture of an organisation that therefore will get on board with, with how important this is and, and therefore the governance that, that drives that type of uh, transformation. Can you 
explain why ISO decided there was a, a role there for coordination between the different standardization programs and, and what your role is as, as the chair of that ISO Climate Change Coordination Committee? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and I mean, I wasn't in the room when ISO decided to, to do this, but, but my understanding is that um, the ISO established the committee very much to help improve coordination and, and reflecting the situation that, that this is complex, that, that this isn't just the role of the, if you like, the greenhouse gas committee technical committee or subcommittee within the wider technical committee of environmental management, but this extends across all of the technical committees of ISO. ISO has done a lot of work, for instance, on the sustainable development goals and SDGs coordination and developing guidance for standards writers uh, so that they can start to embed climate change considerations into standards when they come up for revision. That was done with the SDGs and we did a similar, through, through the committee that I'm involved with, we did a similar process for Guide 84, which is uh, guidance for standards writers. And this is part of this approach of um, reflecting this complexity across the real economy as ISO is mirroring the real economy very much. ISO has technical committees across a host of areas and there's real scope for embedding climate change uh, and climate change transitions into those into those committees. So the committee is there as a platform to help ISO with its own coordination work and to help the technical committees and the experts engage with this uh, this seminal agenda. And that's a good segue into what I was going to say, actually, because clearly it comes back to the, the point that um, terminology, for example, needs to be consistent, not just in the actual science of you know GHG management, but also other aspects of the real economy, as you say, where you know climate change is having an impact. Um, so, I mean, I know that ahead of COP in September last year, there was recognition that, that every ISO standard, as you say, and every ISO committee can make its own contribution to climate action. Um, the London Declaration was signed at the ISO General Assembly um, in September. Uh, BSI as Assembly host led the development of that London Declaration. Now that commits the international standards communities, 165 national member bodies to, um, which is what you were really alluding to before, I think, but it's, it's kind of ramped up previous uh, attempts at doing this. It's committed to ISO uh, and also IEC and the European standards bodies as well, who have, who have um, uh, aligned with this as well, to foster, I'm quoting actually what it says, to foster an active consideration of climate science and associated transitions in the development of all new and revised international standards. And also, and this is quite interesting, facilitate the involvement of civil society and those most vulnerable to climate change in the development of international standards and publications. So the first point I think you've, you've, you've mentioned before why it's so important that actually really every standards committee within ISO and IEC and, and its um, European equivalents consider um, climate science in terms of the uh, how new standards evolve. The second point I think is interesting also, this idea of, of be, being more proactive in terms of reaching out to those uh, communities and, and ISO members actually most impacted by climate change. Um, you know, it's something that maybe doesn't get grab the headlines quite so much. But the idea that um, you know a stronger voice is needed by those organized by those uh, communities. You mentioned before about uh, the north-south divide. Do you think that historically discussions on climate action have been very much driven by the global north? And you know, solutions that uh, that they then determine are ones that perhaps 
least impact business as usual um, and therefore don't go as far as they should do given the emergency we're facing now. Yeah, I do. I do feel that. Uh, whether they are um, embedding business as usual or not, I, I don't know. That that can be that can be a concern. I mean, there is some consideration around whether standards um, can can drive transitions. So whether a standard, um, can, in a sense, work work very very well towards incremental performance improvement year on year performance improvement well that's great but obviously we've got to transition very quickly so you need standards that will support the transitional the scale of the transitional change be that new technologies be that um, rapid transitions of organizations through their governance or other approaches so uh, so there is an interesting uh, question question there and also it's, it's just who is developing the standards so if they, if, if, if there is a, a standard committee that is not reflecting people from the developing world and, and and the global south then 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 yes it won't necessarily be suitable for that situation an interesting thing is of course the balance david as you well know between the international standards and the the standards that are developed at national level as well and there are as you mentioned 165 national member bodies so I think it's really important to also think about the role of standards in countries as well, whether they're the international, what the ISO ones adopted, or whether there's there's other standards and national standards developed. So there's a real um, there's there's plenty of scope for getting the right tool for the right job and the right context. I think, but absolutely critical to get um, get better engagement. So we've 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 struggled, of course, as well. Even the committee that I chair is is one that uh, is largely populated by people from uh, the developing world, and and Asia Pacific. Sorry, the, the developed the developed economies uh, more than the global south, and this is something that that uh, so so we did we've tried to address this. So um, we we ran an event last year with the COP High Level Champions team on net zero transitions, deliberately for international standards experts and across many technical committees. We were also delighted to work with the capacity building unit at ISO to invite in um, standards experts from the Global South via the Developing Nations Group in ISO DEVCO and broaden the event as far as we could. And that worked well and we got a good broad uh, geographical spread of standards experts into that uh, event. Now, of course, the next step from that is is, is, a, is is trying to make sure that the committees and the work that progresses continues to engage uh, experts uh, from the global south. That that doesn't always happen, and it is something that does, does need to have a, a, good, a good focus moving forward uh, to make sure that the standards that are developed are suitable for the context and the scale of the challenge that we face, for sure. Yeah, and I know one thing at the when, um, when the London Declaration was then signed and, and publicised back in September in the ISO German Assembly, what led up to that, apart from the, de the declaration itself, was a lot of dialogue um, around ISO and all of its member bodies to create um, a sort of handbook so called the actual ISO IEC Climate Action Kit, which then included within that case studies yeah. of where standards have been applied um, across the world um, and in their own way, ma making a difference to how 
uh, you know, governments are working with with, um, with with regulators and getting policy um, you know, initiation um, uh, by referencing standards. So there, there, is, there is great work happening. And, and if you want to you know, look at the, the London Declaration um, and the ISO IEC Climate Action Kit, there's some, some good examples there of, of where standards are making a difference and some video video case studies as well. Um, I think that's, that's really important just to say on the, on the toolkit, um, that the toolkit was broadcast at COP26 in the UN's innovation zone. I was I was very happy to see that your colleagues, David, were, were presenting that. And it was good to see the range of um, participation in that. And, and there was, in that, really good representation from the Global South in terms of the use of standards uh, in, in Africa and, and in many other places. So that was a really positive uh, example to see uh, standards, uh, standards, if you like, being used in, in what, what are very frontline situations. So, so I think it's a good example of the toolkit for sure. You mentioned earlier on about how how complex this is in terms of uh, in all the different interconnections and and in, inevitably uh, different types of uh, concepts that become enablers for change and, and catalysts for, for for action. I mean, finance was a major theme of COP26. It was the um, the, the third day of COP, the Wednesday the third, um, because BSI was was hosting a, a panel discussion actually on on finance uh, up in Glasgow. So. Um, in a way, I think it probably didn't attract so much sort of you know major media attention because it wasn't it didn't seem to be in a way uh, it obviously climate related, environmentally related, but um, compared to say emissions reductions and deforestation commitments that were being made around the same time or a few days before that. But can you explain why it's so important to, as the as the phrase goes, you know, to green finance so that it can then finance green? That the the, the the importance of really the financial system to how we can get to some kind of net zero future. Can you break that down in, in, in sort of you know, simple concepts? Yeah, um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but there is a hard edge to this one as well, which is what did the Paris Agreement say back in, uh, back in 2015, 2016 when it was signed? And, and, and the Paris Agreement was very clear um, within Article 9, I think, and, and then there was reference to a new collective quantified goal for this floor of 100 billion US dollars per year um, for climate finance from the developed world to developing countries. And um, there's there's all sorts of experts have written about this and done studies into the status that we've got to and are the pledges that are coming through and the reality of the finance that's being made available meeting that that pledge. So we are still still shorting, falling short at the moment on on that. Um, and if you can you can look at um, there's for instance you do look at OECD um, and Oxfam and other organisations have all put their own their own estimates as to how far we're falling short on that one. So it's it huge improvement. We're getting closer, but um, it's it's not it's not being met yet. And uh, climate finance is, is is critical on a couple of different levels. I mean, and this is again about transitions. So for the mitigation agenda, trying to reduce carbon in developing economies, the scale of investments that are required to, uh, to, to help those economies develop and then to develop in a green way, clearly that's going to require a huge scale of, of climate finance. 
And um, this is this is this is important. But equally, it's important to state the adaptation agenda and the risks and the need for uh, many countries who will be very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and the significant financial resources that they're going to need perhaps to move populations or to deal with adverse effects and reduce these impacts of the changing climate or count or, or just cope with and build their resilience to these these impacts and this is not spread evenly and um Perhaps this is why so many geographers get interested in climate change as a global issue, but but the impacts are, are not at all even in their distribution, and and there is a real need for focus and attention on on uh, on parts of the global south that that are really really up against this challenge. Um, so it's it's both agendas. It's both the adapting to the climate risk side, but also the scale of the transition that is required uh, to ensure that they develop that that. Countries in the developing in in the, in the global south can can develop in in a low carbon uh, towards a low carbon model and and we're along we are still short on on the finance so so there's progress there is there's finance coming through and then away from the the the, the, the state level uh, commitments from 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 parties the the, the 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 global financial community are also very very much active on the uh, on on the whole agenda of transition. So there is a real movement here. So I mentioned earlier that the there are 441 financial institutions who have um, committed to the race to zero. And if financial institutions are getting behind net zero, there's there is a separate uh, race to zero approach for the global financial institutions as well. So this is starting to come through in a much more coordinated and a much more, if you like, led by the by, by the financial community themselves as well, alongside government or separate to government as well. So so I think the um, I think there's a real there's a real need for this clearly, um, and and it's really important to be very clear about what progress is being made and what isn't being made. You know how how close are we to those commitments that are made at Paris, um, and and actually sort of sort of yeah building 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 those commitments through very critical. And, and in terms of the role that finance can play, I'm gonna I'm gonna break this down for my benefit in a, in very simple sort of uh, almost childlike language. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a role there for standards, for example, that can help. Um, provide more trust and, and de-risk low carbon innovation, for example, in energy. So that's a way in which we can uh, decarbonize uh, by by you know renewable technology. So there's a role there, I suppose, in finance uh, uh, in terms of how that can kind of scale up. There's a role, as you said, in terms of how finance can help um, those communities and those those uh, those countries that are already. Um, uh, experiencing the impact of climate change to address that in terms of adaptation and resilience. Then there's the other phrase that comes up a lot, which is sort of nature-based solutions. So this idea of nature being a natural carbon absorber. Um, so that it, we, we're looking at finance here, both in terms of how we can help accelerate decarbonizing technologies, which obviously is, a, is a addressing the mitigation reduction. But the fact that nature can can therefore absorb what carbon is there. Can you explain how again the mar the market and the financial markets interconnect with 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 that side of the equation, as it were? 
Yeah. Um, briefly, <laughs> um, there's a, there's a lot to say about this, David. Um, I think it's 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 hard to. So, for, from the climate perspective, one of the biggest financial developments was the task force on um, climate-related financial disclosures, um, led by uh, Mark Carney, a former governor of the Bank of England, and Bloomberg from from America, uh, and and. The task force was all about financial risk. So it was all looking at the the risk to the financial system of, of, of climate impacts and to organizations and institutions. And and this this has been this has been very seminal, I suppose, in in, in building and mainstreaming awareness of um, the need for climate transitions into into the business community and into the financial world as well. Um, and this will affect investments, this will affect everything. So, so in this context, um, two things come through, the, 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 the transition risk and the physical risk. So I talked about cutting carbon, well, that is the, the transitional risk. You know, am I in a business model? Am I investing in something that is gonna become a stranded asset in the future? Because you can't extract the oil and the coal and use it. And then the, the physical risk being the, the, the physical risk to the to the situation, that the climate impacts, the changing climate and how that impacts the, the economic activity. Equally, uh, that's been very successful. And on the back of that, uh, a separate initiative task force on nature related financial disclosures has developed as well to bring through the natural world and the green economy side into that more, more strongly as well into that consideration. So uh, yes, the, the the natural world and land management more broadly, I suppose we can describe it, is is really important in the whole climate change mitigation and adaptation situation. Um, it, of course, it's important to realise that the 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 absolute cause that underpins um, that that has accumulated uh, carbon in the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases uh, is 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 very significantly fossil fuel use over industrialization and that impacts on the natural world the impacts of the changing climate affect the natural world as well so, so nature can be both affected by climate change and also can contribute but we have to be very careful i think about the contribution because the the the, the fundamental requirement is to decarbonize economies and 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 nature has a role to play absolutely and there's there's an enormous role to play through land management and and that extends through to 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 everything that we we, we consider but um but I do, I do think it's it's important to kind of keep that focus on the on the transition of the economic model and um we, yes so nature has has certainly has that role to play and and it certainly will be an important part of this um, it's a, it's a complex it's a complex situation, but of course it's part of the natural system that is that is uh, being disrupted by these emissions of greenhouse gases. They go into the atmosphere, they then go through to soil, they go through to uh, the natural system, but they can they can exchange between these systems very quickly as well. So it's a, both an opportunity, uh, a forest, can, but it can also end up as a as a as a risk of of, of leakage back into the atmosphere as well. So. So there's an important role to play there with nature, and we have to keep the focus on on the absolute transition of the economic models.
Yeah, completely. I think, again, you said about an important role. There's an important role, obviously, for standards as well. I know there's a, a British standard that came out last year on natural capital accounting. You know, it's getting into that kind of concept of, uh, you know, an organisational's impact. And I know that you didn't mention it there, but but one of the the issues that, that has come up around this topic is, is um, how an organisation that is a, an emitter might think, well, actually, do you know what we can do? We can just offset what carbon we're putting into the atmosphere by investing in you know, forestry. And I know that becomes an, an area which is, is controversial because what's what's not happening is that organisation is not going on a, a kind of reduction uh, journey. All it's doing is saying, we'll keep on doing what we do because actually we can just sort of put it across the other side of the balance sheet, as it were. So You're completely right. There, there isn't enough land for, for that to work at scale for, for all organisations. And this is absolutely agree with you, David. This is why I mentioned earlier that it's, if you like, the race to zero. The important part of that campaign is the race more than the zero. It is about the pace in which uh, businesses are genuinely transitioning themselves, not uh, not paying for offset solutions so they can carry on business as usual, as, as you say. So, so for example, much there, there's there's thinking in in many places that will be suggesting that 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 that, 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 that and, and it does differ from sector to sector and context. But maybe 85, 90% of of emissions have to be taken out of economic activity of businesses, and then you might end up with 10% residual emissions that will have to be balanced through some type of um, removal, which could be an offset, or it could be some other activity um, that's being developed. I'd, re- I'd refer people to the Oxford Principles uh, for Net Zero Aligned Carbon Offsetting as a good source of information to consider how offsetting itself has to change and evolve over the next 20 to 30 years uh, through these through these transitions. But completely agree that there, there is no there's no quick fix for enabling people to carry on business as usual or, or they we, we have to be very careful of of that that kind of approach um I, I think we need to use all tools in the toolbox so i do think that offsetting has a role to play but i but i absolutely would would agree that we we have to kind of account for these things separately people need to see very ambitious reduction targets and they need to drive hard and fast to transition businesses yeah, sure. And, and the, the whole, the fact that there will be and there are carbon credits and carbon trading markets means, you know, that kind of, that that sort of, that ship has left the port, as it were. But what we also need, therefore, is transparency about how they're going to operate and high integrity markets are the way in which people can have some degree of trust in, in the functioning of those. And that, again, is where there's clear role for standards as well. So, you know, we, we can't undo the fact that, that they exist. So let them at least be somehow governed by those high principles and that high integrity you've talked about. Um, ESI um, published a survey uh, early last year, January last year. Uh, at the time, COVID-19 was only nine months old. But the survey itself, the, the net zero barometer, sought to assess UK business readiness for net zero and also identify what guidance and skills businesses felt were needed. We're shortly about to publish an update to that, uh, to the 2021 net zero barometer. But the results I've seen already do hint at the fact that just under half of those organisations we spoke to believe the pandemic has actually accelerated their efforts to reach net zero. 60% said significantly so. One might have thought they'd put it on hold for another 12 months. So that's encouraging. And also, 
with a nod back to COP26, um, seven out of 10 respondents said that COP26 and I guess the, the sort of publicity that it gathered in the last quarter of last year had actually made a difference to it to incorporating sustainability into their corporate thinking. 78% were more convinced um, uh, that reaching the UK's net zero targets was achievable. Do any of those, those findings surprise you, both in terms of you know, COVID and the fact that, if anything, it's become a more of an accelerator to, to, um, to action? And also... Um, recognition, I suppose, from the business community. These were a thousand um, business leaders from small, medium, large organisations that actually the message of COP26 had landed and was maybe starting to have an impact on their, their sort of longer term thinking. Yeah, I do think it. I do think it's fascinating. We've got some statistics in Naima from surveys we've done of um, professionals who work in organisations and they closely sort of echo and mirror the the situation that you've identified in the BSI net zero barometer and I appreciate your study goes out to a larger number of um, if you like mainstream business contacts ours goes to uh, professionals within organizations who are working on the topic interestingly they come up with a similar similar pattern um, which which is not not surprising but so we did. We repeated a survey in 2010, 2019, and 2021, and it had a very similar. And, and those two years, from 2019 to 2021, incidentally, the the proportions saying that they worked in a situation in a, in a context within an organisation that has made a commitment to net zero increased by about 33 um, percent. So, so it went from a third, roughly around about a third, to two thirds of the respondents, just in a two-year period. So. Why is that the case? It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, 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 I do think um, that, that there are <laughs> there are a number of businesses who have had to adapt and, and have to make very significant changes um, in the in the face of the uh, the pandemic and the economic disruptions that we've that we've had. So maybe it's not surprising that businesses are now, if you like, more in a situation where where there's an acceptance of the need to transition, but also a willingness to press on with that. And I guess it's not surprising when you think also that, that there's a huge economic opportunity here with net zero. It, it, it offers a real opportunity for business growth, uh, diversification, uh, green jobs in the future. So I think that the, um, I think the message has been very well received by by. By businesses now, arguably more so than some politicians, perhaps. Um, so we've got we've got a really we've got a really good um, a good set of a good set of circumstances and context to drive forward there now. So there's always this interplay between um, between the importance of the role of government with legislation, the role of um, organisations and businesses standards the importance of standards and also skills um and green skills uh so so i think that that mix if you like of of important ingredients in the economy to drive net zero is is starting to come through now, now you wouldn't know it because you've been very quiet for the last 40 minutes but um my colleague seb van dort's been listening to this that's the reason why he's been so quiet because it's been so fascinating nick but he's actually um, got a question he's now drawing my attention or he's telling me we've got two minutes for the end of the podcast but seb i'm gonna hand the mic over to you you've got a, a, a 
an interjection there on the barometer findings or? Yes, no, there's absolutely nothing that I had to add to the other points. It's excellent. It's really good. I was really enjoying it actually and, and, and sitting back, uh, which is uh, un unusual. I think the only thing that as you were talking is, is that I think the, the only sort of if there is any sort of silver lining to the pandemic, what I found interesting in, in, in this sort of whole transition to net zero is that it also has um, shown what is achievable if you have to change and if you are required to change. So I think, for instance, we had to rapidly produce some standards and you know how long it normally takes. And there was some uh, COVID related standards um, that we produced in, in I think, eight uh, eight weeks, which which is unheard of in, in standards creation sort of uh, process times, and and I think it's it's the same thing. I think everyone always thought that hypothetically it would be uh, um, you know possible to work from home, and and then COVID happens, and all of a sudden we we work from home. So I think you know in in that sense, when people look at you know COVID happening, and then looking at net zero, saying well actually there is a lot more that we can do, and 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 this is what possible. This is what possible if we're forced into that way. So that, that's what I find an interesting dynamic when you know we ask that question: what the impact of COVID is on on that wider transition to net zero, and how businesses perceive it. Really. Yeah. Um, sorry, Nick. Do you want to come come in on that, or I, I was going to make a comment no, on something just, else I've read. Just, just really positive. Um, the the, the Standards do take a long time to develop, um, and we haven't got a long time <laughs> um, with, with, with this situation. So, um, yeah, the, the urgency behind some of the uh, standardisation work is is essential, and and it's in a it's in a diversity of sectors. So, it's really interesting, isn't it? That there won't be one single standard that does net zero. There will be important standards. SBTI, Science Based Target Initiative, have developed. A, a good one and ISO is developing work on a carbon neutrality standard and there's a number of overarching standards that will be important but we will need standards in all in a whole host of, of fields within the economy to to support net zero be it in terms of um, product standards specific standards in, in, in certain economic contexts and sectors so it's really important that the principles carry through from the leading edge standards through to the to the wider standards world, and and that's something that I know a lot of uh, a lot of people in our field are talking about, talking to yourselves at BSI about David, and, and interested in supporting that that uh, that speedy that speedy development of standards. Yeah, and we, and we should obviously point out to to listeners that you know convening sort of the right people in the right room can take time, and getting the right people in the right room to also. Uh, you know, uh, achieve consensus on a topic can take time. So, I mean, we would always say both at BSI and ISO and, and other standards bodies that those are the two fundamental principles that underpin the kind of robustness of the process and the credibility of the output. Because obviously, the three of us could agree where we're going for a beer tonight, and we could probably do that in five minutes. But when you're looking to sort of you know, get the right people in the right place at the right time and agree on, on as you said before, Nick, highly often highly technical. Uh, topics that can take a little bit longer, but as you also said, Seb, sometimes when there's something which is what well, was an emergency last spring, and I think when we're talking about you know climate action, I think yeah we we can we can come together on that. I mean, um, the other thing I was going to say about the, the response to uh, well the, the, some of the the surveys I saw at the end of 2020 really about COVID-19 were recognizing that those organizations then, I assume that's still true now, that had responded best to the interruption of business operations that the spring of 2020 through everyone's door were those businesses that were already more agile and more able to adapt. And it's back to the point you said before, Nick, you were talking more 
obviously about more nation states, but if a business can adapt to that, and this is what you're saying, Seb, then then in a way, given that there there will be uh, and already are a lot of uh, business bumps down the road that are going to be caused by by climate change in terms of well, both the price of, of materials and the interruption in, su- in supply of materials um, and, and multiple other reasons. If they're already able to be adaptable in that sense, then then because of COVID, then they will probably be more um, in a position to adapt to what might come their way in the next, you know, two, three, five years or so. Uh, I mean, that yeah, that's encouraging news, well, encouraging sort of insights that came out of the survey. Um, um, another thing I wanted to point out, really, just going back to IEMA, actually, and to sort of maybe wrap up on a, on hopefully an upbeat note. Uh, IEMA is a network of environmental and sustainable sustainability professionals, as we said beforehand. Um, obviously, you said before, IEMA do a lot of surveys. I know just through the work you do, uh, the outreach you do, you're kind of connecting with a lot of uh, IEMA's younger members. I guess you see their kind of passion and commitment. Uh, perhaps you recognise yourself in them from, from you know sort of ten or years back. Um, you as, as a body, you support IEMA members through their own sort of personal development as well. Are there lots of reasons you think to be cheerful about the future of of the industry from that practitioner point of view? And therefore, given these members are for the most part working in maybe businesses um, and all public sector organisations, do you, do you have confidence in, in the future in terms of how they can then help drive change within their businesses, maybe using standards also as part of that toolkit you referred to, to, to help do the job? Is it, is it, despite the fact that, you know, it can be, um, you know, there can be a lot of times when we, we do put our heads in our hands with what's happening in terms of climate and planet issues are there reasons to be cheerful yeah i'm well i think there's 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 certainly yeah you have to be glass half full rather than glass half empty don't you um in 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 this in this field and and um, and and i I do think there are some genuine um positives there yeah yeah so the the field is growing i mean there's there's a huge growth in jobs in the green economy um, I was a membership organisation is growing quite quickly. Uh, we we also know that um, there is a real imperative of the ethics and values that that perhaps a new generation of professionals coming in hold to and would want to see, and that's being recognised by businesses. So you will often see many large corporates and and. Classic examples are people like Unilever under Paul Polman and other organisations that will talk about the values of the organisation and the importance of attracting good, uh, good employees in the future from 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 from, from the next generation. So, so that's very important. Also, the profession itself has not been very diverse over the years. It's one of the least diverse uh, professions, um, and um, and and that's changing in in the. In the fact that IEMA has recognised that and has established a diverse sustainability initiative to, to broaden engagement and to try and understand why certain uh, colleagues have not come to join the profession and what would help them to uh, help them to join and, and engage with sustainability and environment as, as a future profession. So there's there's quite a focus and an attention on on uh, on the growth of the. Uh, and 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 the importance of the of the values, as I say, that are coming through uh, with professionals um, and, and and younger colleague professionals. So I think this is this is a very um, this is a very important area um, and very very. 
positive from that uh, from that perspective. I think I mentioned earlier it's one of a few, if you like. Um, a colleague used to refer this to the as a bit of a kind of like a reference to um, a certain television program, a bit of a bake off challenge in that you need all of these ingredients in the economy to make everything work. So you do need the mixture of really good professionals and skills. You you need uh, really good standards that help uh, businesses with the net zero transition. You need legislation to a degree um, and standards can help with the legislation interface in that standards can be used as a tool for good legislation. And, and I really would go back to when you think of all of these things coming together, at what level do they come together? And, and you mentioned, I think it was 165 uh, countries or standards bodies within ISO. Well, of course, the the, um, the the 195, 200 or so countries that signed up to the, the Paris Agreement, it, it is the, the parties of the Paris Agreement. So if we go back to the Paris Agreement, it is the parties that have to have to kind of lead the transitions. So bodies like the UN, bodies like ISO have got a really important role to play, but it is the, 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 at that nation state level where the parties have to develop and transition their economies, working with their businesses, and also thinking about the trades between their countries. You mentioned um, Article 6 and carbon trading, David, you know, those, those important facets. Are they, are they getting finance to help transition their economy through uh, traded carbon credits, or are they getting finance through the sustainable finance agenda that you talked about, David? So all of this is very complex, and and it's at that at that, I think it's really important to think about that national level, within the umbrella of the uh, global bodies. So that interplay between the two. No, definitely. Yeah, again, it's, it's very much. I'm trying to think of the three C words here, and I, the ones I suppose I reached for immediately are you know, collaboration, communication, and and consensus. Because ultimately, it, it does come down to that, whether it's at a UN level or an ISO level. So, um, Nick, I think we're at the end of our podcast. But since you mentioned Bake Off, I would like to extend a, a poor Hollywood handshake over to you for what I, I think is certainly in the series so far one of the most fascinating ones. We normally uh, go up to about one hour we've gone beyond one hour here because I think that was so fascinating and although some may think that COP26 was the very 2021 thing the fact is it happened then uh it was a landmark event the UK hosted it but actually the work didn't end there um you're still very much in the work you do uh, at ISO but also the work you do with IEMA still very plugged into all of those conversations and and BSI is with some of the work we're doing with London Declaration, the action plan behind that as well, and initiatives like um, our 2050 World, which was something we launched at COP26. So the work continues. Uh, I'd like to thank you for your time. I'd like to thank Seb also for, for, for you know, interjecting and, and, and bringing in some, uh, some, some interesting insights in terms of uh, how businesses are, are sort of able to sort of show they can adapt to um, whatever gets thrown their way. That's really uh, gives us all some, some hope in the future as well. But thank you once again for joining us on this BSI Sustainability Podcast, and I wish you well for the day. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Seb. You've been listening to BSI's Big Sustainability Ideas Podcast. To find out more about how BSI can support your business, visit www.bsigroup.com and download our little book of Net Zero as well as our annual Net Zero Barometer Report. Meanwhile, to hear more about the stories behind the standards, please also check out BSI's Education Podcast, which we highly recommend. Thank you 
and see you soon on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts.